Thank you for downloading this podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Okay, it has been a while and a lot of stuff's gone on, but it is time to get back to it. So, here we are with Chapter 54 of Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry, The London Companies and the Masons Company. About the middle of the 14th century, perhaps a little earlier, and in the reign of Edward III, the various trades began to be reconstituted under the name of livery companies and to change their name from guilds to crafts and mysteries. There was, however, very little real difference between their new and their old organization, and the guild spirit of fraternity remained the same. There has been a difference of opinion as to the meaning of the word mystery, which was applied to these companies in such phrases as the mystery of the tailors or the mystery of the saddlers. Herbert says that the preservation of their trade secrets was a leading law of all the fraternities and continued their first requirement as long as they remained actual working companies, whence arose the name of mysteries and crafts by which they were for so many ages known. This derivation is a reasonable one, especially when we remember that the word craft, which was always associated with the word mystery in its first use, signified art, knowledge, or skill. This explanation has not been universally accepted, and the word mystery in its application to a trade or handicraft has more generally been derived from the Old or Norman French, where meister was used to denote a craft, art, or employment. There is no certainty, however, that the word was not employed to denote the trade secrets of a guild or company, as Herbert suggests. If meister denoted in Old French a trade, mestre meant, in the same language, a mystery, and the former word may have been derived from the latter. But the modern Freemasons, in borrowing the word mystery from the old companies, where they find their origin, undoubtedly use it in the sense of something hidden or concealed. The origin of the livery and other companies out of the earlier guilds is a matter of historical record. Guilds, as we have already shown, existed in England from a very early period. But, as all tradesmen and artificers did not belong to guilds, or, if they did, often acted irregularly in buying and selling a variety of wares or working in different handicrafts, a petition was presented to Parliament in the year 1355, because of which it was ordered that all artificers and people of mysteries should choose forthwith each of his own mystery, and having chosen it, should for the future use and belong to none other. Right here we may assign the origin of the chartered companies, many of which exist to the present day. Among these bodies we shall find at a later period the Mason's Company, which was the direct predecessor of the Freemason's Lodges, both of the operative before and the speculative after the beginning of the 18th century. In a document found in the records of the City of London of the date of 1364, and which has been published by Herbert, we find the names of the principal, if not the whole, of the city companies which were in existence in that year. This statement is an account in Latin of the sums received by the city chamberlain from those companies as gifts to the king, to aid him in carrying on the war with France. 
The list records the names of 32 companies. Though we find several craft guilds, such as the tailors, the glovers, the armorers, and the goldsmiths, there is no mention of a guild or company of masons or freemasons. Whether such a body did not then exist as a chartered company, or whether if in its existence it was too poor to make a donation, which seems to have been a voluntary act, are questions which the document gives us no means of deciding. Five years afterwards, in 1369, a law was enacted by the municipal authorities of London, which must have tended to favor the organization of these companies. By this law, the right of election of all city dignitaries and all officers, including members of Parliament, was transferred from the representatives of the wards, who had heretofore exercised this franchise, to the trading companies. A few members of each of these were selected by the masters and wardens, who were to go to the guild hall for election purposes. This right has ever since remained, and with some later changes in the twelve livery companies of London. The effect of this law toward increasing the number of companies very speedily showed itself. From a list in Norman French of the number of persons chosen by the several mysteries to be the common council in the year 1370, it appears that the companies had increased from 32 to 48. In this list we find the 17th to be the company of Freemasons and the 34th the company of Masons. The former appears to have been a more select or at least a smaller company than the latter. For while the Masons sent four members to the common council, the Freemasons sent only two. Afterwards, the two companies were merged into one, that of the Masons, to which we shall again refer at a later stage of our discussion. The constitution and government of these companies appear to have been framed very much after the model of earlier guilds. They had the power of making their own bylaws or ordinances, and of enforcing the observance of these rules among their members. These ordinances were called points. The word is first used in the charters of Edward III, who wills the said ordinances shall be kept and maintained in tus points, or in all points. We find the same word in the Constitutionis Geometric in the Regius Manuscript, where the ordinances are divided into fifteen articles and fifteen points. It is also met with in all later constitutions. As a technical term, the word is preserved in the speculative Freemasonry of today, whose obligations of duty are to be obeyed by initiates into the fraternity in all their arts, parts, and points. These little incidents serve to show the unbroken succession of our modern lodges from the early guilds and the later companies which were formed out of them. They are therefore worthy of a special notice in a history of the rise and progress of Freemasonry. We have seen that in the most of the Saxon guilds the principal officer was called the alderman. After the guilds were chartered as companies, the chief officers received the title of masters and wardens, titles that are still retained in the government of Masonic lodges. The ordinances required that there should be held four meetings in every year to treat of the common business of the company. These were the quarterly meetings to which reference is made by Dr. Anderson when in his History of the Revival of Masonry in the year 1717, he says that the quarterly communication of the officers of the lodge was revised. The regulation of apprentices formed an important part of the system pursued by the companies. No one was admitted to the freedom or livery of any company unless he had first served an apprenticeship, a period of time which was generally for seven years. Even then the apprentice could not be admitted into the fellowship except with the consent of the members. Masters were not permitted to take more than a certain number of apprentices, lest the trade or art should be overstocked with workmen and the journeymen or fellows find less opportunity for employment. 
care was taken that one member should not undersell another member or work for a less amount of pay or interfere with his contracts for labor. It was the duty of the company to protect the interests of all alike. There were wise rules for the settlement of disputes between the members so as to avoid the necessity of a resort to law. The spirit of the early guild was in this respect followed exactly. If any debate is between any of the fraternity, says an ordinance of one of these companies, for misgovernance of words or asking of debt or any other things, then anon, or without delay, the party plaintiff shall come to the master and tell his grievance and the master shall make an end thereof. To speak disrespectfully of the company, to strike or insult a brother member, to violate the regulations for clothing or dress, to employ or work with men who were not free of the company and who were generally designated as foreigners, or to commit any kind of fraud in carrying on the trade or handicraft were all offenses which were the ordinance provided ample punishment. The feeling of brotherly love exhibited in charity to a poor or distressed member prevailed in all the companies. When a member became poor from misfortune or sickness, he was to be assisted out of the common fund. All of these regulations will be found copied in the old constitutions of the operative Freemasons, a fact which proves beyond all doubt that they were originally formed into a company following the general usage which had been adopted by the other companies, whether commercial or craft, such as the grocers, the mercers, the goldsmiths, or the tailors. The subject of liveries is one that will be interesting to the speculative Freemason, from the rule with which he is familiar that a craftsman on entering his lodge must be properly clothed. The word clothing here indicates the dress which he should wear, especially and imperatively including his lambskin apron. We have the very important and entirely trustworthy evidence of the fact that secret societies existed in the 14th century, marked by all the peculiarities we have seen in distinguishing the English companies. In the year 1326, the Council of Avignon issued what has been called the Statute of Excommunications, its title being Concerning the Societies, Unions, and Confederacies called Confraternities, which are to be utterly extirpated or wiped out. This statute is contained in Hardwin's immense collection of the Acts of Councils. The following statement is a part of the introduction, and it shows very clearly that the Roman Catholic Church at that time recognized and condemned the existence of those guilds, companies, or societies for mutual help some of which were the forerunners of the modern Masonic lodges, against which the Romish church exhibits to this day the same enmity. The statute passed at Avignon begins as follows. Whereas in certain parts of our provinces, noblemen for the most part, and sometimes other persons, have established unions, societies, and confederacies, which are forbidden by the canon as well as by the municipal laws, who meet in some place once a year under the name of a fraternity, and there establish assemblies and unions and enter into a compact confirmed by an oath that they will mutually aid each other against all persons, whomsoever their own lords accepted, and in every case that each one will give to another help, counsel, and favor, and sometimes all wearing a similar dress with certain curious signs or marks. They elect one of their number as chief to whom they swear obedience in all things. The edict of the council then goes on to condemn these fraternities and to forbid all persons to have any connection with them under the penalty of excommunication, or being expelled from the church. Here again is a pointed reference to the subject of livery. Quote, they shall not institute fraternities of this kind. One shall not give obedience nor afford assistance or favor to another, 
nor shall they wear clothing which exhibits the signs or marks of a condemned thing. End quote. That the Freemasons of the Middle Ages wore a particular dress when at work, which was the same in all countries, is evident from the pictures in several illuminated manuscripts from the 10th to the 16th centuries, copies of which have been inserted by Wright in his essay on medieval architecture. The dress of the Freemasons in all these pictures, whether in England, in France, or in Italy, is similar. In reviewing and comparing these various representations, says Wright, of the same process at so widely distinct periods, we are struck much less with their diversity than with the close resemblance both between the workmen and tools, which continues amid the continual and sometimes rapid changes in the conditions and manner of society. Whether this be in any measure to be attributed to the circumstance of Masons forming a permanent society among themselves, which transmitted its doctrines and fashions unchanged from father to son, it is not very easy to determine. The question is not, however, of so difficult a solution as Wright supposes. When we see that every guild or company of tradesmen or artificers had its form of dress peculiar to itself, which was called its livery, the Freemasons, as a company, followed the customs and adopted their own livery or clothing. The modern speculative Freemasons preserve the memory of the old practice by declaring that none shall enter a lodge or join in its labors unless he is properly clothed. That is, he must wear the uniform or the livery of the fraternity. According to the authority of Stowe in his survey of London, liveries are not mentioned as having been worn before the reign of Edward I or about the beginning of the 14th century. That is, they were first then licensed at that time or mentioned in the charters of the companies, but he admits that they had assumed them before that time without such authority. This fact is confirmed by the illustrated manuscripts to which allusion has been made above, which show that the Freemasons used a special clothing as far back as the 10th century. In the statute of excommunications passed in the beginning of the 14th century by the Council of Avignon, societies or fraternities are denounced, which has been established for mutual aid, and which are described as, quote, all wearing a similar dress with certain curious signs or marks, end quote. About the middle of the 14th century, there began a separation between the rich and poor companies, which ended after a long strife and shutting out from the municipal government all of all except what are now called the 12 great livery companies namely, the companies of mercers, grocers, drapers, fishmongers, goldsmiths, skinners, merchant tailors, haberdashers, salters, ironmongers, vintners, and cloth workers. These companies, noted for their riches, political power, and commercial strength from the minor companies, which were often only voluntary associations of men of the same trade or craft, were called the substantial companies, or the principal crafts the chief mysteries, and other similar titles which were intended to show their superiority, though many of the so-called minor companies, as the weavers and bakers, were really of greater age and of more public utility and importance. Among these minor companies, the one of especial importance to the present inquiry is the Mason's Company. Of this company, Stowe gives the following account in his survey of London. The Masons, otherwise termed Freemasons, were a society of ancient standing and good reckoning. By means of affable and kind meetings, diverse times, and as a loving brotherhood should used to do, did frequent their mutual assemblies in the time of King Henry IV in the twelfth year, or 1411, of whose most gracious reign they were incorporated. A fuller account of the company is given by R. Chiswell in The New View of London, printed in 1708, in the following words. Mason's company was incorporated about the year 1410, 
having been called the Freemasons, a fraternity of great account who have been honored by several kings, and very many of the nobility and gentry being of their society. They are governed by a master, two wardens, twenty-five assistants, and they are sixty-five on the livery. Their armorial ensigns are azure, but this seems to be an error. Sable, black rather than blue, will be seen later to have the preference. On a chevron argent, between three castles argent, a pair of compasses somewhat extended on the first crest, a castle on the second. Before we go further, let us warn the reader against making the mistake that the granting of a charter began the organization. Brother Condor comments on the assertion of Stowe as follows. This statement is correct only so far as showing that the company was in existence at that date, and we must not fall into the error that has so often been made that the company was founded at that time. Indeed, the evidence that is to be found in the corporation records at Guildhall prove very clearly that in 1375 the Mason's Company existed and was represented on the Court of Common Council, and it also recorded that as early as 1356, rules for the guidance of the Masons of London were passed before the Mayor, Aldermen, and Sheriffs of London. In the absence, therefore, of documentary evidence, it is more than probable that the Masons at that early date were accompanied by prescription or authority, and that they had their ordinances and bylaws passed and sanctioned from time to time by the Court of Aldermen. Brother Condor on the same page says that the foundation of the company may be placed about 1220, if not earlier. The hall of the company in which they held their meetings was situated in Mason's Alley in Basinghall Street as you pass to Coleman Street. W. Maitland, who published his London and its Environs in 1761, gives a later date for the charter. He says that this company had their arms granted by Clarenceau, King at Arms, in 1477, though the members were not incorporated by letters patent till they obtained them from King Charles II in 1677. Brother Condor gives 1472 as the date of the grant of arms. The conflict in dates between Stowe, with whom Chiswell agrees, and Maitland, the former ascribing the charter of the company to Henry IV and the latter to Charles II, was reconciled by Brother Mackey in supposing that the original charter of Henry was submitted to a review and confirmation, which was technically called an inspeximus, an act which we constantly meet with in old charters. In other words, the Freemasons first received a charter from their company from Henry IV, which charter was confirmed by Charles II. These companies of traders and craftsmen were not confined to London, but were to be found in other cities. The Freemasons, however, do not appear to have always maintained a separate organization, but seem sometimes to have united with other craftsmen. Thus, among the thirteen companies which were incorporated in the city of Exeter, the thirteenth consisted of painters, joiners, carpenters, Freemasons, and glaziers, who were jointly chartered as a company in 1602. It may be remarked that all of these crafts were connected in the employment of building. Each, however, had its separate arms, that of the Freemasons being described by Isaac in his Antiquities of Exeter. Thus, sable on a chevron between three towers argent, a pair of compasses dilated or spread out, sable. This will be an appropriate place to examine this subject of the Masonic arms as historically connecting the operative craft with the speculative Grand Lodge. According to Stowe, the arms of the Craft and Fellowship of Masons of London were granted to them by William Hawkslow, Clarence O. King of Arms, in the twelfth year of Edward IV, that is, in 1473, and were later confirmed by Thomas Bennett Clarence O. King of Arms in the twelfth year of Henry VIII, or in 1521. 
These arms, which are blazoned or pictured in the original grant, now in the British Museum, are as follows. Sable on a chevron, engrailed argent between three castles of the second with doors and windows of the field, a pair of compasses extended of the first. Translating the technical language of heraldry, the arms may be plainly described as a silver or white scalloped chevron, a V-shaped band, between three white castles with black doors and windows on the black field or background, and on the chevron a pair of compasses of a black color. Woodford says that these arms are supposed to have been adopted by the Grand Lodge of Speculative Freemasons in 1717. Kloss gives the same arms, except that the chevron is not scalloped or engrailed, but plain as the seal of the Grand Lodge of England in 1743 and in 1767. The arms adopted by the Grand Lodge of England at the Union in 1813, and still used, consist of a combination of the old operative arms, the colors being, however, changed, with those of the Athol Grand Lodge, but as the latter arms were most probably an invention of Dermot, the Grand Secretary, they are of no historical value. From all this we see, so far as heraldry throws a light on history, that the English speculative Freemasons have to the present day claimed to deduce their origin from the operative Freemasons who were incorporated as a company in the 15th century. They claim to be their heirs, and according to the law of the heraldry, assume their arms. The reader may note here that in some instances the clothing of the companies was taken from the coats of arms granted to the guilds. As Brother Condor suggests, the Freemasons' livery or clothing would be in that case be black and white. To resume the subject of the Masons' companies, we have no records of the existence of those organizations under that name in more than a few places in England. But the Freemasons seemed often to combine with other guilds for purpose of convenience. Several instances of this kind occur in old records, as in the addition to the charter of the Guild of Carpenters of Norwich, begun in 1375, where it is stated that Robert of Elfingham Mason and certain Masons of Norwich had given two torches or lights for the altar of Christ Church of Norwich. That church was the place where the Carpenters Guild celebrated their Mass. As the fact of the contribution is noted in their charter, it is reasonable to support that the Masons, having no guild or company of their own in Norwich, had united in religious services with the Carpenters. The impossibility of obtaining any continuous record of the transactions of the Masons Company, which was one of the 40 companies of, of London mentioned by Stowe, must render many of the deductions which may be drawn from certain portions of the Harleian manuscript altogether guesswork. The probability or correctness of the supposition will have to be determined by the reason and judgment of the reader. The Masonic public has in its possession at this day, and easily accessible by any student, about 80 documents printed from manuscripts ranging in date from the end of the 14th to the beginning of the 18th century. These documents are usually named the Masonic Constitutions. A very few of them were known to Dr. Anderson, and he has given inaccurate quotations from them in both of his editions of the Book of Constitutions. But for the greater number, new until a recent period, to the world, we are indebted to the researches of Masonic students, by whose unpaid industry they have been unearthed, as we may say, from the shelves of the British museums, from the archives of old lodges, or from the libraries of private collectors. Although we possess transcripts of these constitutions correctly made from the original manuscripts, there is nothing on record to tell us definitely by whom they were written, nor under what authority. 
Internal evidence alone assures that they are all, except perhaps the very oldest of them, copies of some original not yet found, and that they contain the legend or traditional history of Freemasonry, which was believed, and the laws and regulations which were obeyed by the operative Freemasons from the 15th to the 18th century, if not for some centuries before. To make any progress in our researches as to the source whence they have come and for what purpose they are written, we must repeat in a concise form what little we know of the history of the Mason's Company of London. The Mason's Company was incorporated, according to Chiswell and other authorities, in the 15th century by King Henry IV, which charter was renewed by Charles II in the 17th century. We suppose by an inspeximus or confirmation of the original charter, as was usual. But we know from the list contained in the records of the City of London, and published by Herbert, which has already been referred to, that in the year 1376, in the reign of Edward III, there were in London a company of Freemasons and a company of Masons, the former of which sent two and the latter four members to the Common Council of the city. These two were wholly distinct from each other, but Stowe tells us that at a later period they united together and from that time onward acted as one company. What was the difference between these two companies is a question that will naturally be asked and one which cannot very easily be answered. Brother Mackey held the opinion, and it is not at all unlikely, that the Company of Freemasons was the representative in England of that body of traveling Masons who had spread under the auspices in favor of the Church over every country of Europe, and whose history will constitute hereafter an important portion of the present work, while the Company of Masons was the representative of the general body of the craft in the kingdom, who had formed themselves into a guild, company, sodality, or brotherhood, just as the mercers, the grocers, the tailors, the painters, and other merchants and mechanics had done at that same period. The two companies were, however, afterward merged into one, which retained the title of the Company of Masons. Each of the trade and craft guilds or companies kept a book in which was contained its ordinances and a record of its transactions. The language of these books was at first the Norman French, sometimes, says Herbert, mixed with a sort of Latin or the Old English of Chaucer's day. Afterward, during the reign of Henry V, and by his influence, the ordinances were translated into the common language of the period, and the books of the companies were thereafter written in English. We find just such changes in the dialect of the old Masonic constitutions from the out-of-date and, to unused ears, almost foreign style of the Hallowell or Regius poem to the modern English of the later manuscripts. If the Mason's Company had had a historian like Herbert, who would have given a detailed history of its transactions from its origin, as he has done in respect to the twelve livery companies of London, we should have had no difficulty in defining the true character of the old constitutions. Many heroes have lived before Agamemnon, but they have died unwept because they have no divine poet to record their deeds. So, too, we are left to dark guesswork in almost all that relates to the earliest history of the Masonic craft in their primary guild life, for want of a reliable chronicler. We may, however, assume, as more than probable, that there must have been for the Freemasons a book of records and of ordinances, just as there were for the other trade and craft companies. Indeed, Dr. Anderson says in his second edition that the Freemasons always had a book and manuscript called the Book of Constitutions, of which they had several very ancient copies remaining, containing not only their charges and regulations, but also the history of architecture from the beginning of time. Dr. Plott, also in his Natural History of Staffordshire, tells us that the Society of Freemasons had a large par parchment volume amongst them containing the history and rules of the craft of masonry.
The contents of that volume, as he describes them, agree very closely with what we find in the old constitutions. We have, then, good reason to believe that the manuscript constitutions, which consist of the legend of the craft and the statutes or ordinances of the guild, are all copies of an original contained in the archives of the company. And this original, Anderson says, was the Book of Constitutions. We need not claim that the title given by Anderson is the right one, or that he had authority for the statement. It is sufficient to believe that there was a book in the archives of the Mason's Company, as there was a similar book in the archives of the other companies, and that the manuscript constitutions as we now have them were copied at various times and by different persons from that book. But it must be evident to anyone who will carefully compare these manuscripts that there must have been two originals at least. The legend of the craft and the set of ordinances differ so materially in the Regius poem from those in the later manuscripts as to indicate very clearly that the latter could not have been copied from the former, but must have been taken from some other original. Now in 1410 there were, according to the catalog given by Herbert from the London Records, two distinct companies, that of the Freemasons and that of the Masons. We think it is very reasonable to conclude that each of these companies had a book of constitutions of its own. If so, the Regius constitutions may have found their original in the company of Freemasons, and the later manuscripts, so unlike it in form and substance, may have had their original in the company of Masons. If, as Findel and some others have supposed, the Regius constitution was of German or continental origin, the prayer to the four crowned martyrs leading to that supposition, then the fact that this Regius manuscript was copied from the Book of Constitutions of the Company of Freemasons would give color to the thought advanced by Brother Mackey that the Company of Freemasons, as distinguished from that of the Masons in the year 1410, was an offshoot from the fraternity of traveling Freemasons, who, at an earlier period, are by so many Masonic students supposed to spring from the school of Como at Lombardy in northern Italy. But we must advise the reader to preserve an open mind on this particular angle of research. A new charter, or perhaps a confirmation of the old one, was granted to the Mason's Company in 1677 by Charles II. About this time, we might look for some changes in the long-used Book of Constitutions of the old Mason's Company, and of which the earlier manuscripts from the Lansdowne to the Sloan are examples. Such changes are found in the Harleian manuscript of the 17th century. This differs in several important points from those that preceded it. Besides the old ordinances, which are much like those in earlier manuscripts, but in somewhat better language, there are in the Harleian manuscript 15 new articles showing a distinction between company and lodges. Article 30, the fifth of the new articles, uses the following words. That for the future the said society, company, and fraternity of Freemasons shall be regulated and governed by one master and assembly and wardens as the said company shall think fit to choose at every yearly general assembly. There are several points in this article worthy of attention, as throwing light on the condition of the fraternity at that time. The words, for the future, show that there was a change then made in the government of the society. The use of the word company shows that these regulations, or new articles, were not for the government of lodges only, but for the whole company. The existence of the Mason's company here is plainly recognized. The word assembly cannot mean that the company at a general assembly would choose an assembly to govern it, but that this may be due to a careless copyist writing assembly instead of assistance. 
In the charters of other companies, we frequently see the provision that besides the master and warden, a certain number of assistants shall be appointed out of the guild to aid the former officers by their advice. For instance, in a charter of the Draper's Company, after providing for the election of a master and four wardens, it is added that there shall be others of the guild who shall be named assistants of the guild or fraternity aforesaid, and from that time they shall be assisting and aiding to the master and wardens in the causes, matters, business, and things whatsoever touching or concerning the said masters and wardens. Assistants formed no part of the government of a lodge, but were common in the livery companies, and it is evident that the article under consideration and therefore that the Harleian manuscript containing it were copied from the book of the Mason's Company. For this article shows that there was a yearly assembly of the company. We are not, however, to infer that this yearly assembly of the Mason's Company was, as some of our histories have supposed, a grand lodge. If so, as the master of the company must necessarily have presided over the general assembly, he would have been its grand master, and as there were no other Mason's Companies in other parts of England, there would have been several Grand Lodges, as well as several Grand Masters, all of which is unsupported by history. Indeed, neither the words Grand Master nor Grand Lodge are used in the old constitutions. Both titles seem to have been adopted at what is called the Revival in 1717. There is marked likeness between the provisions of the Charter granted by Charles II and those of the Harleian Manuscript. To take one reference only from the Charter bearing on the above four articles, all and singular masons, free men of the City of London, and all other subjects that should thereafter use the art in London or Westminster, or within seven miles compass of the same on either side, should be one body incorporated politic by the name of master, wardens, assistants, and commonality of the art and mystery of masons. Either the rules adopted by lodges for their government were later on put into a royal charter for the general betterment of the trade, or the charter provisions were made first, but with the same result. The comparison is a very interesting one. There are some other articles in this Harleian manuscript that are worthy of attention, as showing the condition and customs of the craft in the 17th century, and which will further be discussed. And that ends Chapter 54 on London Companies and Mason's Company. And then we'll pick it up with Chapter 55, The General Assemblies and Lodges of Medieval Freemasons. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.